0: This episode of the Cosmosis Podcast is brought to you by Low Vintage Instrument Company, located in downtown Burlington, North Carolina. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit their website at lowvintage.com. Not only do they have some of the finest new and used instruments you'll find anywhere, but they also have the great accessories that you need by some of today's top brands. So find your timeless tone today at lowvintage.com, that's L-O-W-E vintage.com, And tell them you appreciate their support of the Cosmoses Podcast. Welcome to the Cosmoses Podcast, episode number 31. I'm going to play in just a little bit an interview that I conducted live in Raleigh at the World of Bluegrass at the Convention Center with Tim Shelton, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy that. And uh, I'll give you a little rundown of uh, of some of the events at the World of Bluegrass. It was a good time. We played uh, on the award show, and we played Saturday night at the Street Fest, and uh, there was a lot of people out there for that. If you didn't make it to that and you're in the area anywhere around Raleigh next year, you'll want to come and uh, and check out Street Fest if you don't check out anything else. I encourage you to check out the the shows at the Red Hat as well, but if you wanted to go and, and just see a bunch of music for free, it's possible there. But uh, Sierra ended up taking home the uh, Phantom Player of the Year this year. She was nominated... Nine times, and and this is her first win. Of course, I'm talking about Sierra Hall, the multi-time guest on this show, and uh, who I perform with regularly. And we were really thrilled to uh, to see her take that home. And I'll invite you to visit justinmoses.com for all the latest dates and uh, and much much more. And links to my Facebook, Twitter and all the social media. Uh, feel free to share this show, please do, on social media, and uh, and help spread the word. And check us out on iTunes, if you're not listening to it right now with iTunes. And I'm going to get right to the interview today. Um, it's got a little bit of length to it, so I won't waste any time. Um... I did. It was on site there uh, in the convention center, so there's a, there is some uh, background noise, and I only had the, the one microphone with me, so I had to kind of put it between us, and it was a little closer to him, so um, his speaking is a little louder than mine, but hopefully you'll be able to hear everything well and, and enjoy this interview. So here it is with uh, Tim Shelton, live from Raleigh. All right, here with, with Tim Shelton. Of the Surly Gentleman. Yes. A Surly man indeed.
1: A Surly Gentleman indeed.
0: <laughs> here at the Convention Center in Raleigh. So tell us what's uh, what's been up the last few days, you know, getting here to IBMA and, and just what all you've been involved in.
1: So yeah, we're in Raleigh, North Carolina at the IBMA's World of Bluegrass. Uh, got a new band with uh, Clay Hess and his son Brennan. We're down here, hawking the surly gentleman to as many buyers and people that'll listen to us and, and want to hear about us, and uh, so yeah, that's what brings me down to Raleigh.
0: Yeah, and y'all did uh, some showcases on on Monday night or uh, Tuesday. T- night, Tuesday
1: right? night, we did three showcases. We're doing something in the uh, you know the way the the world of bluegrass is. The first part of the week is typically more business and oriented, and then the, the rest of it is sort of fan. Uh, is geared towards the fans, um, and, and then the exhibit hall is, is where you've got a bunch of you know manufacturers of instruments and, and some bands. Uh, so we're going to be down there also with uh, my podcast sponsor. We'll be down there, and uh, we're going to go down and play uh, a little bit for them. So we're down here just uh, just getting the word out about the band, the Surly Gentlemen.
0: Uh huh. And you all have been doing some recording, right?
1: We have. Uh, we've got a song, a couple of songs cut and started, and uh, a bunch of material uh, that's that's sort of ironed out, and, and uh, probably we'll have it out in the first quarter of next year. Should have it finished by before the end of the year, though, um, probably before the end of November. Uh, but the material and the the show and the music that we've got, it, it's kind of like if. If the music that Rice made from the late '70s and early '80s and the Stanley Brothers had a kid, it probably sounds something like this. <laughs> uh-huh. So it, it's you know when the tra- when we're doing more traditional stuff, it's really traditional, and then the other stuff is 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 not so far left of center that uh, uh, an average bluegrass fan is going to get up and fold their chair and run away for the <laughs> camper. Head um, for the hills. Head yeah. for the hills. There's no banjo, <laughs> um, but. Uh, I think it's something... And so far, the response has been really well, um, even among the buyers that, that I've talked with. You know, when they ask me what's who's in the band, what the configuration is, none of them had anything negative to say. And that was kind of a big unknown factor for me coming into this week, was like, what are they going to do because there's no banjo? You yeah, know? like right. I mean, there's so many purists uh, that, that are buyers in Bluegrass that they want it, you know... They wanted a certain way, and that's fine to a degree. But so so far, it's been positive. It's been good.
0: Yeah, had had some good response. Um, how about the uh, you, you? did the showcases. How did the, how did those go?
1: Uh, well, the showcases are weird though. Like, and I'd forgotten how it made you feel <laughs> uh, physically. They're they're late night. <clears throat> Typically, they go from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah, and. I, years ago we used to do them a lot with newfound Road in the early days uh, in Louisville and uh, we'd be there doing you know six and eight and ten showcases in a week and by the end of it you were sick and your voices were fried well my voice is fried here a little bit today but uh, I'm not sick so yeah. um, I think it went well though you know they're just physically they're just hard so it's, it's kind of overwhelming you know we had some we set up our own sound we, we hosted actually our own showcase so um, yeah, it, it was a little different, but um, there's a lot of new faces here. It's, it's changed a little bit.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, um, what's your overall impression of you know IBMA being in Raleigh is? I know you've only been here for a couple of days, but
1: yeah, the, the noticeable differences in anywhere else that we've been, as far as we being the IBMA, and yeah. I'm a member, and is is uh, this city, the downtown area, everywhere you go within walking distance, they're playing bluegrass music. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are bluegrass, the logos for the world of bluegrass, all over downtown. Mm-hmm. So the, the town seems to have really be- gotten behind the whole event and I don't think the organization has ever experienced that before.
0: Yeah, they embraced it like I don't think any other no. has.
1: Yeah. No, and... Uh, you know, I mean, Nashville was was convenient for me because it was a five hour drive, it was mm-hmm. super easy to get to, straight shot. i could get there, back, you know, if I needed to, pretty quick. Um, but uh, from the organizational standpoint, they they didn't need IBMA any more than they needed any kind of other convention because it's a major point for conventions, and let alone it's it's Music City, and there's a lot going on with music. And they didn't embrace it. They didn't embrace uh, the community or the organization or the, the event. So uh, they somehow nailed Raleigh down as their next landing point, and it was, it's a good decision, whoever made it.
0: Did you ever go to the one in Louisville much? Yes, yeah.
1: uh, several times. I don't know how many times, I don't remember. Um, but, yeah, I was there for sure.
0: And what was the first year that you went? Do you remember that? It
1: probably would have been 2002 or three.
0: I went to uh, the one in 2000 was the first one that I mm. was able to get to, and basically I think I went to all of them beyond that up until they moved to Nashville, yeah. and then obviously I ended up moving to Nashville myself, and uh, mm. it was really convenient. Yeah, just go it was home really with you. Yeah, but uh, but the overall atmosphere of the events much better here.
1: It feels like it, and and I noticed this morning. Um, I went to a town hall meeting uh, within the organization, and and it wasn't as though there were, you know, a huge number of people in the room. But everybody there said that was the biggest crowd they'd ever had for the town hall meeting. And in part because it's at 9.45 in the morning and most people's (laughs) musicians are up jamming and showcasing until 2 and God knows how late uh, jamming. So they're not going to get up and go to it if it's in the morning. So there were a handful of musicians, but a lot of other industry people that were there. And um, it's uh, this week has been a real like for the organization. They've 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 really uh, focused on diversity and being more open to uh, diversity within the community of bluegrass and all that's good. You know, Um, you know as long as it's not something that's just rammed down people's throat. But it is just the music, and everybody should be able to enjoy it, and everybody should be a part of it if they want to play or be in the business. It doesn't matter who they are. They should be able to be a part of it and be comfortable being a part of it. So all those things are good. Um, so that's a big difference in what I've seen in the last few years because a few years ago, I don't think you would have heard that kind of talk at an IBMA town hall meeting.
0: Yeah, yeah it seems like uh, the tide has kind of changed in a certain regard.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And that... Um, and I think ever since it's moved here, that's been reflected in just who they've had booked on the main stage too, for the uh, the weekend festival part of it. Just a little bit.
1: A little more progressive. A little bit more. Yeah, yeah a little you know, left to bit center. More, yeah. There's a lot of people within bluegrass, and I noticed last night on Facebook. Uh, it's funny, my feed. I've got I don't know 5,000 Facebook friends or people that follow me on Facebook and. So it's a mix of people that are here or people that are want, they want to be here and they're envious that they can't be here or the people that don't want to be here and are super uh, traditionalist and they don't want to be here because that ain't bluegrass, you know. That's <laughs> Whatever bands they perceive as not being bluegrass and they, they go into uh, bashing mode of, of people that are here and how the industry is is this or that, and how the IBM may is a waste of time and money. And, and, you know, I mean, a couple of them were making some valid points uh, to a certain extent. I'm just not sure that's the way to go about it, you know. Uh, we, we had a conversation over dinner, me and you and I and yeah. Sierra, over something similar. But after I got back to the hotel last night, uh, I, I got on my phone, and, and sure enough, that kind of talk <laughs> was floating around again, you know. Yeah. it's just... It's interesting, you know. Everybody wants to complain and gripe about stuff. I mean, I I do it on my podcast all the time, just not about specific people necessarily, uh, especially within our business. Um, Well, there was that one time I I kind (laughs) of bashed a guy for being ridiculous, but (laughs) you know, it's just. I mean, let's be real. You're calling yourself a prince or something. You got to get called out for it.
0: Every now and again, it's uh, it's warranted.
1: <laughs> and that was one of those times, <laughs> but uh, it feels like the overall vibe here in the in the city uh, is, is much more. Uh, it's like they appreciate us being here, you mm-hmm. know, for yeah. sure. Yeah. What about you?
0: Well, I just rolled into town on uh, yesterday, actually, and and it's been quiet, man. I've not really done that much other than uh, sound check for the award show. You know, I'm playing on that tonight with Sierra, and she's hosting it. And, uh, Which I
1: didn't even know. We were at dinner last night, and I don't even know who brought it up, but maybe at the point, don't, I don't know if it was before dinner or during dinner that somebody mentioned she had rehearsals for the, the award show, and I didn't realize she was hosting it. Yeah, uh, so- Miss Fancy Pants is the <laughs> award show host.
0: Co hosting with uh, Dan Taminski, another <laughs> the one of my old cohorts. Who you, you ran into.
1: Right? I did. We stood out in front of the hotel and talked for like 40 minutes, and uh, it was just he and I for a good chunk of that time. He's such a cool dude. We ended up just talking about cigars and music and guns and, you know, just not really business at all. Yeah. Uh, we just had a conversation.
0: I'm sure he can carry on a good conversation about cigars he's yeah he's quite the efficient on
1: it yeah for sure I, I tell you know I, I like and when I I could smell it as it was in his hand I'm thinking oh god I want one <laughs> so I I do enjoy a cigar like once or twice a year yeah um but you know not once or twice a day <laughs> I asked him if he felt like it hurt his voice yeah and he said no
0: yeah, I, I don't I don't think he would think
1: that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to hurt, like, I'm not saying he sounds different because he smokes cigars, but for sure, we know that it's probably not good for your voice as as an artist. Yeah, it's likely um, to have an
0: effect, but I mean,
1: I... It hasn't affected him.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that's
1: what he was saying. So I was, that's, when I asked him that, you know, I... He said uh, surprisingly, no, you know he it's, did say that when he smoked cigarettes, that did,
0: yeah yeah, for sure it's surprising how many uh, singers I know that, that smoke that you wouldn't think would
1: yeah, um for sure there, there's one that comes to mind I don't know if he still smokes, but I know he used to smoke like a freight train and and still sang like just incredible singer, <laughs> but he was just just right and left just and on cigarettes it's just terrible for you it's, it's amazing that people just still smoke cigarettes constantly you know yeah. and i'm a I, i'm not gonna knock somebody because they smoke cigarettes do what you want as long as it's legal and not hurt anybody else but uh i gotta think that by now you know my dad has emphysema and has a hard time breathing walking across the room so i'm like Ugh. you don't you, you don't know what you're getting into you know mm-hmm. like if you're doing okay now, but right. what's that going to be like in 10 years? What's yeah, that going to exactly. be like in 20 years? You know, yeah. it, it, it will be a problem, most likely.
0: Well, man, um, you host your own podcast, The Tim Shelton Show. and I know you, you've recorded at least one while you were here. Tell us about that interview.
1: I did. I, I had uh, a fellow that you know um, from Ear Trumpet Lab Microphones, Philip Graham. Uh, this guy that has developed these really cool uh condenser mics they look like something that's uh was would have been built in the 1920s or 30s they sound great uh i've used them i i bought two off of him uh earlier this year and i've used them in my solo show i used them at a theater in wisconsin that was built in the early 1900s and it just sounded amazing Mm -hmm. and uh I, you know, he's a cool guy, fascinating, interesting guy. Used to be a web developer, hated his job, got out of that, started building these microphones. Uh, the short, sweet version is that his daughter uh, wanted to wanted to record some stuff, and mm-hmm. he just thought, hmm, "I'm going to tinker around and build a microphone," and <laughs> and it turned into this business, this thriving business. And now he's got employees back in Portland, and and uh, it's a growing growing company and you see them all over the place
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah like there's tons of horse that are using them
1: yeah absolutely
0: including Sierra
1: yeah Sierra yeah. uses them the Earls of Leicester use them the Sir Gentlemen use them I mean there's there's a bunch
0: if you've seen me You know, play on one of Sierra's shows for the last couple of years. I've been using one on the banjo.
1: Which one do you use? Do you know the model name?
0: Yeah, it's the Edwina. Yeah,
1: yeah, Uh, we use that for Clay's guitar. Edwina, I guess. Yeah, and mandolin, and then the the Myrtle is the one that's like the the bigger one with like the spring holding the uh, the mic in in the center. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he he was. We did a show earlier today, actually, and. it's fascinating, you know. Like I, I, I'm fascinated by anybody that that a leaves a, a steady, comfy nice. day job. But man, I think people a lot of people are figuring out, like you know, I can probably manage and build this whole lifestyle for myself. It doesn't doesn't require me to go to work for somebody that really doesn't care if I'm there or not, and the company that may or may not care if I'm alive or dead, or may, <laughs> or, may or may not care if I'm. You know, where I am or about me as an individual. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people hate their jobs and that makes life miserable. And it affects people physically, mentally, affects their lives for the, for the, the I mean, just in a real negative aspect. And, and it's, uh, I think it's good when somebody can figure it out and start working for themselves and, and if they can manage all that and, and whatever it is that makes them happy and do that. That's the way to go. Yeah. Um, it's just figuring out how to pay the bills with what you love. I, I think it makes a better life for people.
0: Do you know who uh, Ezra Klein is?
1: I know the name.
0: Yeah, he's he just, I mean, he uh, owns this Vox.com. It's a, like a website and they publish, you know, articles all the time. Mm-hmm. He uh, has a podcast and he has another podcast that's called The Weeds and they really get into like, uh, policy, like political policy, that that sort of thing, but one of the things that they got into the other day that I thought was interesting was uh, some guy did a study about people flipping a coin to make big life decisions, and, uh, wow. well, and, and, and whether people followed through on it and mm. whether they were happy in a certain length of time and in another length of time, and so... But what they were talking about, and I agree with this, is that if you're at the point of, like, you're, you know, you're thinking about changing jobs and you're willing to flip a coin on that, you probably should change jobs. Sure. So yeah. it's more indicative of, you know, we're hesitant to do things a lot of times that we know in our mind that we want to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you try, to, try to rationalize and try to think everything out and be sure of it, but a lot of times by the time you, you know, you've waited all this time to make a decision that you really knew a long time ago that oh, yeah. you should have made or whatever. It was just an interesting discussion on that. And, uh, there was something else to it, too, that, um, uh, well, I guess that was a main point, anyways.
1: I, uh, I've been reading, uh, Tim Ferriss's book, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, and, uh, I don't know how much you know about Tim Ferriss, but he has a really good podcast. Uh, just, yeah, it's great. Just
0: that you've, uh, you've mentioned him, yeah.
1: I would, I highly recommend it to anybody they're fascinating he, he basically dissects the lives and, and and people that are super movers and shakers in whatever their industry is um, I mean he's had on guests like Arnold Schwarzenegger he's had on um, tons of, of tech gurus and people that are billionaires and multi-millionaires that have built their companies and and all these stories uh, there was one the other day i listened to this guy and i'm drawing a blank on his name but he basically had a, a job and he's making 11 bucks an hour trying to support his family uh well, <laughs> um, trying to support his family and uh started doing these vlogs on youtube and uh-huh. built up this gigantic following ended up selling his company and, and build a company out of those vlogs on YouTube where he basically 20 minutes a day would film his family and what they were doing. <laughs> Sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars to maybe Disney or one of the mega media companies. Right. Um, so there's, there's just that's his whole thing his whole premise and Tim Ferriss is a guy that, that uh, made a fortune in supplements hated his life at that point <laughs> was making 70 grand a month But didn't know how to get out of it. Working 15, 16-hour days every day, seven days a week, couldn't figure out how to get out of it. Knew he was miserable, knew he had to change things. So he figured it out. He took a sabbatical, went to Europe for a year, set up his company to, or tried to set up his company to sort of streamline and run itself while he was away to figure out what he wanted to do and and take a break from working like a maniac. And then he wrote uh, the four-hour work week and went on to be a... New York Times bestseller many times over and he's got this wildly successful podcast but it's because he's a guy that's actually done stuff you know he's not just some there's tons of people like motivational speakers out there that make millions but they've never done anything you know like what <laughs> right. have you done why are you a motivational speaker why do you know so much about this when you've never really done anything other than motivational speaking <laughs> but this guy is somebody that has built a, a several Successful companies. He was an early investor in Twitter and Facebook, and so I listen to people like that more than I'll listen to some Tony Robbins type character, you know, um, or some preacher on TV that preaches prosperity or whatever. If they if they think it, they're just going to get rich or whatever. That stuff is just. Well, it's just baloney, and uh, I know people are gonna, may hear this, and they, some people may get offended by that, but it's just like, oh, it's just common sense. <laughs> you can't just wish that you had a million dollars in a bank and then go eat a sandwich and expect <laughs> it to land in there.
0: I thought of what I was <clears throat> going to say, though. It was that um, people are hesitant to make changes, but they're more capable than you think. Or I mean, you're more capable than you think of adapting to your circumstance your new circumstance yeah
1: right? but when I, bef- my whole point of going into the whole Tim Ferriss mm-hmm. diatribe was this uh, I'm reading his book The 4-Hour Workweek and he sort of lays out like what he did to get to where he was able to manage his business m- and, and, and not let it kill him anymore right and one of the things he was talking about is is in, in uh, one chapter about leaving your day job to go do your dream or follow your passion is way out sit right down or just measure out like what's the worst case scenario exactly literally write them out the worst case scenario you're gonna okay you, you starve you lose your house is that really gonna happen and how okay you write those things down and then write down what can you do to prevent those things from happening once you quit that job yeah and then there are other like more tangible ways of looking at it you know i've heard business people who who did that where they left their day job they hated went on to build a successful business that they wanted and they, their advice was maybe get to the point where you're making sixty percent of your income at that day job that you hate yeah. before you make the leap to just yeah. quit the day job. Yeah. Sure. So those are things that that uh, that's why I went on the whole Tim Ferris. that was his advice. I didn't or advice. I didn't want to take credit for it. Um, but uh, it's interesting and probably pretty accurate. You know, if you mm-hmm. look at it.
0: Anytime that I've made changes to my, you know, my job situation, I've, I've weighed the, uh, like you're talking about, I, I, I always look at, okay, what's the minimum amount that I need mm-hmm. to, to be able to live on and work from it, you know?
1: Yeah, and that's you, you've all gotta relative. you got to be
0: reasonable. you got to be reasonable about how, how much reserve you have and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and
1: it's relative, you know? Like, some people, they... I've got two kids, you yeah. know, if you've got kids and a wife, that's a game changer. You really it's have to like look total, at all yeah. that stuff. You can't just go, Oh, I can get by on just living in a hotel room. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I don't need a car. I'll just Uber everywhere. Yeah. If you got a family, you kind of can't do that. You've got to really, so maybe the, the 60% of your income on your passion, uh, before you quit your day job makes more sense in that situation. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm somebody that procrastinates and 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 just sits and like weighs out decisions way too much. I, I I've, I'm trying to get past that. Like I've. Uh, you know, I, I wrestle, and it's draining when you sit and focus on that stuff, too. It, it wastes a lot of time uh, mm-hmm. if you do it yeah. too much. Yeah. So I'm trying to get through all that and, and not do that as often as, and, and spend as much time and energy on on those kind of decisions because, you know, there are worst-case scenarios. Look at those and figure out how to overcome those and sort of how to work through it, you know, technically, logically. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, man, take the reins. Like, lead, lead us forward with this
1: <laughs> of what?
0: Yeah, of, I don't know, the discussion, the <laughs> podcast. We didn't make a big plan for this. We uh, We
1: didn't. Um, we can talk bluegrass. We're in Raleigh. We're at the World of Bluegrass. We can talk music. We can talk music business. Let's do that. Let's do it. Let's do. It. So, what are your thoughts on the state of bluegrass music at this point?
0: <sighs> it's such a it's such a wide question. You know, I just on the last podcast I did <clears throat> right before I left to come over here mm-hmm. i released one on uh, tuesday two mm-hmm. days ago and i had a guy the second show that i did overall i didn't have a guest on it was just me talking and i talked about the trip we were making or made the the previous weekend mm-hmm. uh, i sort of run down what we did in order uh, I, you know getting to the airport all, all the, the things stu- all the stuff that you to prepare for do. the trip yeah and this guy wrote me, and he was like a little bit shocked that, you know, that we had to do all the things that we did. He was like, "I thought there would be limos and assistants and all this <laughs> stuff." <laughs> this,
1: excuse me, sir. This is the Dave Matthews Band.
0: <laughs> right. No, there are situations like, uh, you know, obviously very, very successful musicians, but in bluegrass, it's just not that way. Like, even with the people that are doing really well by right. our standards, sure. And so I don't know. It's just it's interesting to uh, to address these topics. I also talked a little bit about how you know most bands or uh, artists try to portray mm. themselves in a better situation than they are. Sure. And that's just a part of the.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people uh, they show up in a bus. They show up. Uh, oh yeah, we're making this and this and and, and man. Um, Sure, there are bands that show up in a bus and they can afford it, but there are probably more that can't afford a bus and they're traveling in one yeah. than there are that can't afford it. Oh, yeah. It's a big, gigantic, expensive, uh, depreciating cost, <laughs> and... And people that don't understand uh, the cost of a bus, okay, let me break that down for you. Let's say you get a used bus, and I don't mean 30 years old, I'm talking 10 years old. A 10-year-old bus will have probably a million miles or more on it Mm -hmm. because people that use tour buses, they tour, they travel relentlessly year in and year out. So you've got something that's a hunk of depreciating metal, and uh, they've all got moving parts that will tear up not a matter of if they tear up they're going to tear up at a bus is i don't know the percent but it's going to be like 10 times more to fix an engine for example uh may run you 15 to twenty thousand dollars on a bus a transmission you're looking at 10 grand mm-hmm. so if that goes out a, a, a generator five to 10 grand Those are the big expenses. Mm -hmm. Then you've got all the other little parts that are going to be hundreds and hundreds here and hundreds there. Not a hundred, but hundreds of dollars for little things. All those things add up. Stop and fill one up. Those tanks are (laughs) huge. Uh, I remember years ago, we were on a bus, and the driver stopped and put a half a tank in, and it was 500 bucks. Yeah. $500, a half a tank. Right. So... There are major, and then the insurance, and you know if it breaks down, and it will, um, you're going to be out repairs. You can't just call any old tow truck driver to come pick you up. You've got a gigantic expense there. Uh, so there's hundreds of dollars to tow the thing. All these expenses. What I'm getting at is, it's very expensive. And you mentioned people that are trying to that, that try to look like they're doing better than they really are, and I think that comes along with it. in... Uh, and. and the bus thing, and, and yes, there are people that can afford it, but there are a lot that can't afford it. Probably shouldn't have it. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Like cycle, so I, I know for, f- I haven't heard it come out of this manager's mouth, but there are people within the industry, agents, managers, who actually encourage their artists and bands to go buy a bus with the mentality that it will help them look like they're. Yeah,
0: Star perception-wise,
1: the perception is is reality type thing, and in that case, it doesn't merit. It just doesn't. That doesn't add up. You cannot validate that to me. There's no way you can't. How do you quantify that? That's an opinion, you know. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, if it works out, like there's probably been a few cases in in you know music history. I don't know about bluegrass history, but the music history where that's worked. You know, like where people have actually went oh they're a pretty big deal and then you know but it's not it's not the uh, the rule i don't think i think no. it'd be the exception
1: i mean it's one thing if if a manager goes hey go do this uh, this the national anthem for the titans or the Bengals or the this is a monday night game and you're going to mm-hmm. you're going to possibly be televised that's perception. <laughs> that create that can create perception oh, yeah. and to a large number of people. But pulling up in a festival with, you know, a thousand people or five thousand right. people What's or the whatever's good? there, I mean, is it really worth the the risk involved in the overhead of a bus of a? And I don't think I, got, I don't think I got into the cost of a bus, but a ten year old bus is going to be anywhere from two hundred thousand dollars to a half million bucks. You get into a new bus, you're looking at 800 grand for Mm -hmm. the shell. Yeah. That's a a driver's seat and a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. Then you add on another 200 grand to fix the thing up inside. It's just, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. People that... Preach that nonsense is just that—it's nonsense. It doesn't add up, you know. It's my opinion.
0: Right. I let us on a big tangent, but you asked me about the state of bluegrass. Yes. To me, uh, that's—it depends on what metrics we're using and all that. I mean, my perception is like the traditional side of like bluegrass festivals and everything. It seems down a little bit, you know. And I know that the uh, the membership of the IBMA is down a little bit. It is. Um. I don't. I don't know, man. I don't know how we go about.
1: I did hear this. That. Yeah, I did hear this morning in the town hall meeting that I attended that the attendance for the business conference was up twenty percent from last year.
0: Okay, yeah. but
1: I don't know what the fan part of it, what the what the fan fest or whatever it's called now.
0: Well, uh, it'll it'll happen this weekend, and I guess. It's yet to be. Right. Seen. I don't know what it's yeah. going
1: to be. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it's if it's up as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a. I almost feel like there's there's different worlds within like acoustic music. I don't know if you want to...
1: There's several different worlds, I think.
0: Right, right. I don't know if, you know, I guess if we're being specific about bluegrass, my perception is like the festivals and things like it seems to be down a little bit. But I mean, the other music festivals that we've played at this year, to me, they seem they're they're doing really well.
1: Yeah, the festivals that have a broader artist roster or uh talent lineup, I guess is the better term. They seem to do really well. Mm-hmm. They seem to be big. And there are people like the, the string dusters who have figured out that as a touring artist, you gotta go out and build your own audience yeah. to grow it. Right. Um, you can't depend on just a festival circuit summer after summer after summer. Mm-hmm. Because that festival circuit for the most part, it's the same crowd. It's the same people. You're in and you're out. You're not growing it. Mm-hmm. You're not growing your business. You're not growing your fan base. So they went out and they figured out, we got to go do something else here. We can't just depend on that. And they went out and they plotted around for years, growing one fan at a time at bars and clubs and listening rooms and selling hard tickets is what the industry term is. Um, and now those guys, they, they couldn't. Go just about any city in the country and sell 500 tickets, and if you're doing that, Which is a, yeah, that's, a, a, that's very a respectable. That's a respectable number, you for know. Sure. It's it's not arena rock, but, but uh, it's really good for. A it's a very good number, and it's a very <laughs> successful act. I don't care if you're a comedian or a
0: mm-hmm.
1: even a. There, I'm sure there are a lot of country singers that would like to do that. Yeah, you know, at this point with with, so it's it's. I could see that. Um, I've been out of it a little bit um, for a few years. You know, We were kind of in the traditional bluegrass festival world for a long time. But towards the end of Newfoundland Road, we were playing, about 40% of what we did was bluegrass festivals and the rest of it was other stuff. It was performing arts centers and, and rooms like the Arc in Ann Arbor, these listing rooms that would seat anywhere from 200 to 400 seats. Uh, a few colleges mixed in with some smaller clubs, so we got to a point where we weren't depending on the festival circuit either. Uh, we didn't get to a point where we were selling tickets like the the Dusters, for example. I use them as an example because I've talked in depth with with Jeremy Garrett about it. He's been on the show. Um, we talked business and 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 how they just went about growing their band and their business. And I, I don't know how much of that's focused. Here at the at the conference if, if there was that conversation and panels and I didn't see it. Right. But I think that's something that could, they could focus on and maybe help people, you know, have somebody like Andy or Jeremy come in and say, look, this is what we did. Yeah. And if you all want to grow, if you all want to move the needle a little bit, you're going to have to do the same thing.
0: Yeah, kind of laying a little bit of a road
1: Sure. Because it's not breathing underwater. It's it can be done mm-hmm. you know it's something that a lot of people have done
0: yeah yeah that seems like something that um like you're saying is not focused on but for bluegrass sacks to uh, to really grow their audience they it's it's a necessity to to um to grow your own audience that will come to just see you.
1: I had an agent towards the like the last three years at the band tour, three or four years, and um, he had and still to this day does a lot of rock and, and different stuff. And um, I mean, he flat out said he said you're never going to grow your audience playing these festivals. Mm-hmm. He said the only way to grow your audience is through hard ticket sales, yeah. and it's what we're talking about. You know, you've got to go out and grow it there's no other way there's no secret there's no there's, not in this business there's no right. like instant success there's no such thing even Allison she's like the perfect example of success with somebody that they do play bluegrass in yeah. their show even right. though they may or may not be perceived as a bluegrass band right. they, they kind of make their own music they're, to me they're almost their own genre mm-hmm. but they went out they toured relentlessly for years yeah, I mean, three hundred days a year, they were gone, and and, and uh, built their own audience over time, and and yeah, they had timing, yeah, they, th- they had things in their favor that worked out. You know, timing is important in a lot of situations. You know, they they opened for Garth Brooks when he was the biggest star in the world. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't hurt anything, right? Then, right. um, but you know, they were already. We,
0: having a hit you know really does make a hit makes you know makes a difference
1: even though the the president of the label told me that that song was never a big hit on the radio hmm. uh-huh. i I still hear it to this day on the radio, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I don't know what merits a hit in his eyes, but right. yeah I had that conversation with him once, and uh, he was like, well, that song was never a big hit, you know on the uh-huh. radio.
0: I guess it depends on how you define it you know? I guess yeah.
1: yeah. Regardless, it was a platinum record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a hit. Uh-huh. Something's, <laughs> if you, something's
0: going right in that case. Yeah, if
1: you sell a million of anything, something's <laughs> going pretty well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they went out and they built their own audience. They built fan base. They were just the most talented. They were the best at what they do.
0: You know, let's, let's talk for a minute about the state of the the art, you know, the state of, like, where the, the music itself is sitting. Um, what, what are your... What's your take? What's
1: your take on that? Uh, the business itself, or the, the
0: the the music itself, the art, the music like, uh, of
1: bluegrass. Yeah, seems to be there are a couple of camps, like you said, within the community of bluegrass. You know, there's some that they don't want to see percussion on stage. They don't want to see. There's some that don't want to see an electric bass near the stage. There's right. some that don't if it's not what Flat and Scruggs did or Monroe did they don't want to hear it they don't want to see it they don't want to on their roster or their talent lineup if they're a promoter so there's that part of the crowd there's that segment of Bluegrass fans the uh, super traditionalists and then there are other you know you go know, at other events like um, Telluride or Rocky Grass or a little more uh, lenient of other bands and acts that come into the scene so there's 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 all these different. It seems like there's a segment that that hates anything progressive or remotely progressive. They want it to stay the same that it would have been in 1948. <laughs> um, and then there are others that they're open to ideas and change and and you know it doesn't mean that the traditional music is going to go away just right. because something more progressive comes along and it's considered bluegrass Mm -hmm. I don't know it's it's that was part of the whole debate I saw last night on Facebook was you know that ain't bluegrass this is bluegrass well you know you had people that were just going back and forth with each other and um you know well
0: you know I'm a little bit I guess a little bit more open like Barry Bales was on on the show a little bit uh, a couple months ago maybe Mm -hmm. and um he even said to a certain extent, like he, he takes exceptions sometimes to things that are called bluegrass. Sure. And uh, I, I, I get that, really, I do, because, yeah. you know, it's in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent. But, you know, I, I, I get one to keep a label to mean a certain thing. Right. You know I saying?
1: completely understand it, because what would happen if everybody was just what would ha- I mean like, Mumford and Son comes to mind yeah. uh, their music now doesn't sound like it did on their last record not anything close yeah. it's more pop oriented more right. digital sounding uh, more electric sounding um, or before it was more folk and, and had some sort of close resemblance of, of bluegrass mm-hmm. in a way uh, even though it wasn't traditional bluegrass Um that was an argument that was presented online last night, and and I get it. You know, like it, it does.
0: But labels aside, you know, I'm I'm for people making whatever music you want to make. Oh, and absolutely. As long as it's good, like we two talked kinds of about, music. Yeah, we've talked about it before, but yeah, good yeah. and bad. Right? Yes,
1: absolutely, and yeah. and I get labels are important to a degree because inside the business, you go from like if if I'm a label and I got to sell to whether it's Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble or whoever is still selling records, which there aren't many of them nowadays yeah, right. um, they've got to call it something yeah on the retail end of things mm-hmm. or the marketing end of things so I, I, I guess I would take exception to some things being called bluegrass too I mean if if well
0: I mean um, uh, it, for me uh, I guess I' more so mean it from a uh, uh, like, the, I guess a fan's perspective or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, I, I really wish there didn't have to be labels, but, you know.
1: Right. Sure. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, yeah. I don't get caught up in the whole, that ain't bluegrass, son, yeah, right. conversation.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, you know, there's certain things that you know, as soon as you hear it, man, that's bluegrass.
0: But, uh, yeah, okay. So, have you heard any good records uh New records, uh, because there's a, there's a few that come to my mind at this point, like, lately that I've heard that every time I think, man, there's just not a lot of good new bluegrass getting made, mm-hmm. something comes along that hits me pretty good, I think.
1: I think anything Blue Hi- Blue Highway does is going to be that.
0: Yeah, man, their new record just, it, it knocked me out. I, I, I love it. Yeah. I think they did great, and it's, uh, it's great. It has a very traditional feel yeah. to it, you yeah. know, without being... Uh, Fakely traditional, if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Well, it's them, it's authentically them, but but, uh, the the, uh, traditional side of what they they do, I thought it was great.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I haven't heard it yet. I I need to get it, I need to download it. Um, But yeah, um, anything they do is going to be great. And uh, And, uh,
0: Mike Cleveland has a new record that I just heard some clips of the other day, and I mean, he's just so phenomenal. Yeah, as a player, but it's it's really good traditional bluegrass. You know? Oh, I'm
1: sure. Yeah, and that's what he's going to do. You know, yeah. like he's not going to do anything else. Yeah. There's not going to be a question of that. That conversation of is that bluegrass or not? Or that ain't bluegrass is not going to. You're not going to have Michael Cleveland in that conversation. <laughs> There's not going to be a question mark next to his name.
0: But it's still possible to make really good. <clears throat> you know, very good bluegrass records.
1: One of my favorite bluegrass records of all time, there's not a banjo near it. Yeah. It's Manzanita. Uh-huh. There's not a banjo to be found on it. You right. don't miss it. Right. You don't go, oh, damn, I wish there was a banjo. On that record. <laughs> you don't. Uh-huh. You hear it and you think, God, that's good. Uh-huh. That is such a great record. Probably, arguably one of the most influential bluegrass records of the last 40 years, however old that record is now, mm-hmm. pushing 40 years. Yeah. yeah, I guess it is. I mean, that record in the Crow album. They're right up there. Yeah. And th- look, there, there's been this conversation for eons now. I mean, it's it's been going on since the Osborne brothers drug out drum kits on stage back in the... I guess it would have been the late 60s, early 70s when they added that. And, and Sonny was even plugging in the banjo on some of that mm-hmm. stuff, which... Yeah. You know, they, their whole reason behind it was they were playing country package shows, and they didn't want to get lost. They didn't want to get buried in the in the sound. And these country bands were playing that had ten times more volume than them. They were like, "Look, we're gonna plug in, or we're gonna get lost in the shuffle." Yeah. Um. But I, I think you know, I, I don't listen to a whole lot of bluegrass these days, to be honest. I just don't. Yeah. Uh, when I listen to stuff, it's usually old bluegrass or old. Uh, California country music like Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt the Eagles and that kind of stuff or Sinatra, I've been on a big Sinatra kick lately, like mm-hmm. early Sinatra but uh, yeah, I mean anything Blue Highway does is going to be great um, recently that's what I've listened to though, like new Bluegrass
0: mm-hmm.
1: I haven't heard Sierra's record yet I want tell me about Sierra's record
0: okay well uh, besides
1: man, having I, the coolest artwork of the last 20 years
0: <laughs> she sent a, a copy of it out for me to bring to you and i didn't oh good i didn't do it but i can
1: how before dare you, you leave <laughs> how dare you
0: no. <laughs> no it's uh it's her on mandolin and plays octave mandolin on some of it and uh, ethan yojevitz plays bass and uh that's it for the most part there's uh, banjo on two tracks and Baylor played the banjo in there. And uh, harmonies by Allison Krauss, uh, Ian and Giddens, and Abigail Washburn. And and they're kind of scattered throughout the record, too. Mm-hmm. So some of the songs are just Sierra and Ethan. A lot of them are. And then there's uh, some of the harmonies added here and there. And then the banjo on, on the two tracks.
1: Did you play on the record at all? No, no. No.
0: no it was just, uh, you know, Baylor was producing it. Yep. And... And the way he went about putting the record together was starting with just her mandolin. And <laughs> wanted to just hear that, you know. That's because, a
1: completely different way to record.
0: Yeah, it's a, well, a different mindset. Yeah. Because Sierra had uh, been playing in the bluegrass band situation for years. That's yep. all she had did. and 5 That's five all piece she band. had done. And yep. uh, um, she took those songs to him in the form that uh, they were in with the band, basically, and uh, and he asked her, just, I'd like to hear just you do it. And hmm. uh, you know, the whole idea is like she's the the lead singer and the lead person in this band. Like you really kind of need to hear from her, mm-hmm. you know. And so
1: she's a focal point. Yeah, Theory. needs to be. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so that's that was the you know the central idea of doing it that way it's like i want to hear what just you sound like with it and then he was like to me that's more interesting than all this other stuff mm-hmm. going on you know yeah. and so um they only added what they thought was necessary sure or <laughs> i don't even know if necessary is the right word uh you know sierra wanted some support on some you know something so mm-hmm. um, the base was uh probably a pretty natural choice to to happen you know yeah and so the only other thing that was added was banjo and that was, you know, Sierra wanted to have Bail play a little bit on it and uh, it made sense on the the things that it's on so mm-hmm. yeah so it's very uh sparse the the whole record is very uh it's an introspective mellow record really
1: which I love I I love a record that kind of kind of breathes Mm-hmm. And it's not just a wall of sound just crushing you, your eardrums, mm-hmm. from start to finish. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of over those kind of records for now. <laughs> not that they didn't have their place, but yeah. I just I'm not really drawn to that anymore at this point. You know, I'm sure. That's not to say I don't want to hear the bluegrass album band, you know, oh, yeah. or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying the big gigantic produced records. Um, and I've been a part of that to a de- to a small degree mm-hmm. in the past. I just don't I'm, that doesn't interest me right now. Yeah, I like I like uh, simple,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: pro- kind of the, which is the main reason why I started this trio. It's just Clay and I and his son, and it's just I don't know. It just allows more more space in between the notes and, and timing and and. Uh, I don't know, I just, that's, I just like it, um, yeah. I'm into it, you know. Um,
0: um, and so, when I say, well, they started with just her, um, that's just like sitting around, like, show me the tune, and then when they actually went to record, they, they did track together, and all that yeah. sort of thing, so it was, uh, it does have a very live, live feel. That's good,
1: it? Mm-hmm. I, I dig it. I mean, there's some people that can pull off uh, building a record, oh, yeah. and making it sound live, uh-huh. but... You know, I, I I love hearing live records. It's impressive, for one thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all the old stuff that I love, that's that's how they did it, because they didn't have a choice. Yeah. They just knew their craft well enough to go in there and pull it off. You know, if you listen to, like, a, a Sinatra record during the Capitol years, he's standing in there, and there's even footage of it on YouTube. He's standing in there with this... Big band behind him or in front of him, and they're just cutting that stuff live. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's art. It, it is absolutely a piece of art. And even some of that stuff, you know, like Barry and I talked about this on my show when he was on my podcast. Um, if you listen to a lot of the Stanley Brothers stuff, those guys would go in and cut a record in a day. Oh, yeah. Start to For finish, sure. live. And there's so much feeling into it. And that's a big part of what's missing in too much music for me, for mm-hmm. my ears. Uh, if the heart and soul is gone out of it, and technically it's just this brilliant, you know, like millions of notes and, and perfect sounding record, that's fine. But that's not what I'm drawn to mm-hmm. at all. I'm more, I like to hear something that moves me, whether it's something that's kind of angry and intense, or if it's slow and just pretty. You know, that's sort of what I'm drawn to. I
0: think you just kind of answered the question, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, say this, too. I had another listener question that asked what, I guess sort of in a specific way, if you can pinpoint what makes music good as far as moving people. And I think you hit on some of it just a second ago.
1: If you can create a mood or a feeling... With a song,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to me, that's what makes it great. Yeah. It's it's not about the flashy stuff or the technical production. And there's 14 guitar tracks on the song, and that that can have its place, I guess. But that's not what I'm drawn to. What I'm drawn to is something that moves me. Whether, like I said, uh, a Ron Block solo. Uh, so long so wrong for example
0: (laughs) that's a good one to reference yeah
1: uh that that record like the stuff on there is just intense at times and Mm -hmm. it's like angry it's like a punch in the gut it just it's like oh my god his playing is so freaking good and it sounds so sonically it's just brilliant that moves me but then going back to that same record as an example uh, looking in the eyes of love, you know it's like this soft, pretty. It showcases Allison. The music on it is is, is perfect, but it's not like perfect as in it's soulless. You know, right. there's right. a difference right. to me. There's like this plastic perfect that has no soul, even though it's smooth as silk. Right. Um, but their 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 records are just perfect in that way.
0: Yeah, you're looking to, I think, looking for uh, something that taps into emotion. And that's yeah, hard yeah. to put a finger on when you're um, <clears throat> playing in a certain regard. It either has to sort of be there or not, you know. Um, because, like, what you, you referenced, you know, So Long, So Wrong, and some of the solos and just the, the way it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't go after that and do it. You can't perform it unless that is in you, unless the emotion or the, you know. I agree. I think it's got to be in there. That's what makes a, a particular player who they are. And that's that's like, you can't duplicate that, Mm-mm. you know.
1: No. It, it does have to, I, I think it's got to be in there. If it's not in there in the performer, it's, a, it's at the very minimum, it's got to be in the material. Yeah. And then the performer, if they've got it, then you've got, like, magic. It comes together, yeah. It comes together, and you've got all of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the thing about Allison and and those records the band makes. I keep using her as an example because she's, like, the best example in my estimation uh, as somebody that can make a record, and some of it's real, like, stripped down, and then some of it's the whole band, but those guys all play so well and they but they play like with such feeling and emotion and, and energy it's just, that's what I'm looking for, you know Absolutely. And, uh, Chris Steele is another guy that can do it You know, he can make a whole album of just him and the mandolin and it's got all this energy and, and emotion and sometimes it's frantic, crazy sounding stuff and other times it's just like this beautiful material and, and Sierra the same way and, and there's just all these brilliant musicians, Tony Rice's records um from the late 70s, mid-70s, up into the early 80s, to me had that same vibe, that same feeling, you know. I mean, not only were they executed extremely well from a playing perspective, they had a lot of feel to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, his version of early morning rain, jeez, just, (laughs) good God. I tell you, when you, uh, let me ask you this. This is kind of off-topic. But not really. <clears throat> what do you appreciate most about Rice's guitar playing?
0: Well, that's a a, a good question. I, I know what you're getting at, and I, I think my answer lines up with it, is that the, his rhythm playing mm. you know, is, is, is so good.
1: Absolutely. And something I've noticed just in the few days I've been here, and I've noticed it before, but it's kind of been amplified here because there's so many young pickers here uh, you hear a lot of those licks oh yeah but you don't hear any of that rhythm
0: <laughs> true true. you know uh-huh. like
1: there's very few people that try to pull off the rhythm part of it mm-hmm. and for me I'd rather hear just learn the rhythm <laughs> just get that down um, but it's I get it it's more fun for a kid to figure out the licks and to learn that stuff yeah. and it's exciting and it's and it is great
0: but that rhythm should be exciting too if you really listen
1: to it I'm telling you right now that rhythm is exciting yeah. it is the most exciting <laughs> yeah. rhythm I've ever heard yeah. and that guy still like I, I know Tony isn't playing anymore I saw him within the last six or seven years mm-hmm. uh, he played with uh, Mountain Heart yeah. and Josh Miller got up and played banjo because Barry was having some issues with his shoulder or something mm-hmm. and couldn't so I was standing off the side of the stage watching and Tony just stepped up to the mic and did that thing. Whatever that is, he does rhythmically and it's just like, oh, it's still there. <laughs> it's still got it. And it's it moves you. Like, his rhythm, it's moving. It's got that oh, yeah. emotion to it. Exactly. Whether it's a slow, pretty song or some, you know, traditional driving, you know, bluegrass tune. Um, that, right. to me, is what but to answer your question a minute ago that's what makes it great It's it's got all like the energy and the feel and the motion to it
0: there's a handful of guitar players and maybe there's more than a handful I don't know I'm not really you know thinking of everybody that really have their own style <clears throat> these days I mean Tim Stafford definitely has his own for sure style. you
1: hear him and you know exactly who it is
0: yeah um, <laughs> and I'm blanking out on, on a lot of other ones. I mean, you know, I know I should be able to name off more than that, but of today's guitar players...
1: Um... Yeah. Just pure stylus where you're right. instantly recognizable.
0: But that's something that's, that people should shoot for. You know, sure. You should want to want people to be able to pick you out as a, oh, that's, that's so and so. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to do that if you're just completely... Uh, emulating someone else, you know, and not trying to to come up with with something of your own.
1: Yeah, Ron Block's another guy that's instantly recognizable in his solos. Oh yeah. As soon as you hear sure. him play, you know who it is. Yeah. I mean.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. As far as uh, solos and everything,
1: and I mean, on guitar. Yeah. Obviously, his banjo is instantly recognizable. Oh, yeah. um,
0: Cody Kilby's a great guitar player that. um you know, you definitely recognize his solos, mm-hmm. and I would say rhythm at this point too. Having worked with him, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know that I appreciated his rhythm as much till I worked with him. Mm-hmm. And working with him, it's I really noticed it more.
1: Tyminski's like, rhythms, <laughs> something that stands out. You yeah, know? like it's yeah. its own thing, and it's obviously great. And uh, lead guitarists in this acoustic world not just specifically to bluegrass but it's pretty narrow i think um who's some who's some people that uh were influential on you
0: were influential yeah um tony rice definitely is at the top of the list but um other than that i mean clay jones was influential he really was like he was somebody that um that came on the scene like i i heard him on the uh Lou Reed and Carolina, mm-hmm. Lou Reed, Terry Bachman, and Carolina albums. And, uh, of course, um, gosh, I'm having a hard time thinking of that right on the spot, too. I know there's a lot more guitar players that I listed. David Greer, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, he's at right at the top of the list. You mentioned Stafford. I'm sure Stafford Sta- Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, Stafford, and I listened to Kenny Smith, and I listened to, uh, I don't
1: know. It's just a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. i tell you guys it's a stylist. Uh, I don't, I mean, people, it seems like more people recognize him for his singing because it is so great. Um, but I'm a fan of Sparks' guitar. Oh, yeah. Like, sure. there's so much feel to what he does. Mm-hmm. It's so different, and it's just sometimes it's this crazy you don't know where it's going but I always dig it Mm -hmm. always
0: yep see he's somebody that I didn't think of on the spot but he definitely was somebody that that was influential
1: oh yeah I think Rice maybe aside from Earl Scruggs is probably the most influential acoustic and bluegrass musician ever
0: yeah Yeah. Bill Monroe right Right. if you want to obviously like Tonight, they're uh, inducting Clarence White into the Hall of Fame, and he right. was a he's a great guitar player and, and an influence on Tony. Right. And uh, you know, you have Doc Watson, who's also sure. a big influence on not just Tony Rice, but you know, tons I blew a million, of million others. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> big influence on Brian Sutton. Yeah. 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 There's so many great players in the world. You're one of them. I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here, but you—you uh, you have this freakish ability to jump from instrument to instrument and sound great <laughs> on all of them. Um, I don't get super jealous when people like that. I'm impressed by it. I'm—I'm—it I'm, makes me happy when somebody's really good at something, um, you know. I had
0: a good time getting to play a little bit of guitar the other day on a, a tribute to the band show mm. with Allison Brown. Nice. It was uh, <clears throat> sort of Allison and Gary and. Uh, Sierra and myself and Stuart Duncan played fiddle on it. Hmm. And then everybody that was at Fresh Grass, not everybody, but like a lot of the, the acts there got up on stage and, uh, and did a song or two.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was, that was a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, bet. I, I really hadn't studied the band's music that much, mm-hmm. but um, obviously I've heard some of the songs sure. and, uh, and getting to, to play through them, you know, made me even more aware. Oh, yeah. So it was was pretty cool. I rarely get a chance to play guitar on anything. Really? These days. So uh, that was pretty cool.
1: Awesome. Good deal. Who would you say is the most influential bluegrass musician of all time?
0: Well, I mean, it's either Earl Scruggs or or Bill Monroe. I mean, I would say those two. Um, Probably Earl Scruggs. You know, yeah. just for his, his style and everything. I mean, Bill Monroe um, started the band that eventually Earl joined, and, you know, I mean, it's what definitely defines bluegrass. Right. You know, but.
1: Uh, it wasn't bluegrass until Earl came along. Yeah, yeah. You know?
0: So. I would yeah. say him, probably.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at the sheer number of people who picked up an instrument because of another musician, I think it would be close between Rice and Earl because there are there are a blue million guitarists. Yeah, there are a bunch of banjo players, but it seems to me that there are more guitarists who are trying to be Tony Rice, trying to be a hot lead guitarist. Um, it seems like the number of of guitarists versus banjos would would be. It seems to me like rice would be I think probably the more most. Players, yeah. yeah, my my opinion. I don't know if anybody's ever looked. There's no way to track it, you know. We'll but
0: do some extensive research. In we will do. <laughs>
1: we'll get our crack staff <laughs> yeah. of uh, our podcasts on that real soon. Um, but it seems like that would be the guy. Like you yeah. know. Um, Obviously, we're all...
0: I was glad. I mean, I'm, I'm giving this away, but nobody's obviously going to hear it until after it's over with, but um, on the award show tonight, they have a... Uh, Tony recorded a, a clip, you know, <laughs> of him talking uh, to introduce Clarence, so yeah. it'll be good to, uh, to hear from him
1: again. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, for those that don't know, Tony's had a bunch of health issues in uh, the last several years, and... Uh, wherever he is, uh, hopefully he's uh, on the mend with various ailments and physical problems. Um, but yeah, I just I don't know of another musician. I mean, Earl and Tony would be probably the two to me. And Munro obviously is, is a, you know, super influential. But I just think for the sheer number of people who picked up a guitar because of Tony, it'd be hard to it'd be hard to like beat that number. I bet. Yeah, could be wrong. Know,
0: I hadn't thought about it like that, but it's true that um,
1: But if yeah. you look at like the overall picture of like, okay, if it weren't for Earl, there wouldn't be bluegrass bands. Yeah. That's the guy for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's even I think it I think he's, to me, like, that's the king of the father, the king, the doctor, the whatever of Bluegrass, <laughs> if you want to start throwing around nicknames. We'll like, have to come
0: up with, we've got the king, we got the father, <clears throat> let's see. He's deity. The, the, the deity of Bluegrass, Earl Scruggs. The, the deity. The godfather of Bluegrass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's your man right there, I think, yeah. like, overall, because without that sound, like, there's no crow, there's no... There's no bluegrass album band. There's no Crow album. Mm-hmm. The '75. Uh, there's no Alison Krauss and Union Station as we know it. So I, I really think Earl's probably overall the most influential bluegrass artist ever. Yeah. My opinion. I'll probably pissed a lot of Malin players off and Monroe fanatics off. But <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm right, folks. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I just, I feel like I'm not like sure
0: that. you can say anything these days without taking some money. Oh, yeah. So, people get know. mad over
1: anything. There there are people online who are, uh, they want, their recreational they're they're recreationally angry. <laughs> You know, it's like true. It's they want true. something that's, that's, to be mad about. Pastime, yeah. It it is. It absolutely is. And then there are those that make a living off of it. You know, whether it's writing articles online or they make a living going around protesting this or that. Um, I should
0: look into that. that I do.
1: I do feel. And then and there, and there are those that just hobby it uh, and, and and just gripe about everything on Facebook. You know, yeah. there's there are those guys within this business for sure that they go crazy with it.
0: Well, you got anything else to add to the?
1: I don't think I have a thing to add. I guess it's time to go check out the exhibit hall. Yeah. I got some more work to do. We've got the award show the award tonight, the big tonight. award show tonight, and Fancy Pancier airs hosting with Dan <laughs> Tominsky. Um. So. Uh, it's gonna
0: be a good show. I got a little preview of it yesterday. Yeah. The theme of it is bluegrass on screen, and it's. Uh, Interesting. It's uh, kind of paying homage to some of the TV shows and, and movies through the years that have used bluegrass music and well, have f- gotten exposure for the bluegrass music. Well let's talk
1: about that real quick before right. we close out. Right. I can only think of a handful of films and television shows and obviously the most obvious one is the Beverly Hillbillies Yeah. and Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Uh, but it, I guess you could throw in Deliverance in Deliverance there too. Deliverance is in it yeah. Um
0: Andy Griffith show was mentioned. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Of uh, course, the Dillards. They had yeah. The Dillards on there a lot.
1: Yeah. And um,
0: uh, Clarence and Roland White were on it at one point. Yeah. The country boys are. Uh,
1: the Dobro out. player, the, the from California. I don't know if you've ever met him or not, but it's Mac. Um I'm drawing a blank on his name I met him he's on the show in like the very first one where they have a band and oh, really? Andy's trying to put a band together so uh-huh. this record this record executive's come comes through town he's trying oh, yeah. to put a bluegrass yeah. and he's gonna sell them you know and he's got uh-huh. investors he wants the town you know like Andy and Barney to invest in it whatever but the dobro player and I'm drawing a blank on his name he was such a sweet guy I met him out in California and he's he, he still plays still music. Plays. He plays in a gospel band out there. Huh. And I have met him uh, several times over the years when we played out there. Just super nice guy. But uh, yeah, you're right. The Whites were in it,
0: and uh, of course, Old Brother. That's and Old Brother's a big and the big
1: one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Geez, I was trying to think of like newer stuff, but not, that's such obvious choice. I completely forgot about that. But yeah, that's that's. The you know, I'm not going to say one. it on here. Yeah, don't don't tell me. No, I'm not going yeah. to say yeah Spoiler
0: alert! Just to not spoil it for you <laughs> specifically, because it doesn't matter for people listening; it's done happened, you know? right? But um, the you'll you'll get a kick out of the uh, finale, I think.
1: Awesome, yeah. <laughs> I love stuff. That, I love stuff that's put together like that. So it'll be good. I'm looking forward to. It. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, recording here from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. The world
1: of bluegrass. The
0: world of bluegrass.
1: Uh, thanks for having me on, Justin. Uh, thanks for letting me talk about this surly gentleman, um, and uh, it's always a good hang. Yeah, well,
0: uh, um, I'm sure you'll be posting uh, on your social media and all that when the record is done and it's yeah. coming out and everything. Um, you got any upcoming shows you can mention?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I'm 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 doing a solo. I don't have my site in front of me but I'm doing a solo date coming up in northern Kentucky uh and I'm drawing a blank on it so I won't even mention it but coming up uh, November the 12th uh, the surly gentleman will be at the down home in Johnson City Tennessee and then November the 19th we're going to be at the Star City Brewing Company in Miamisburg Ohio which is south Dayton Ohio uh, sort of home base for me uh and basically in my backyard so it will be there and there's already a lot of people seems like in that neck of the woods uh, that are very interested in the show so um, those are two that, that come to mind Newfound Road is going to be doing a reunion show on uh, October 29th in uh, Elizabethton, Tennessee just go to timshelton.net to find out more about that to download a free song go to the surlygentleman.com, sign up you'll get a free song easy peasy
0: all right Thanks a lot, man. This has been fun. Thank you.